hello everybody and welcome to the newest episode of the Library Girl and Book Boy podcast. Today it's all about the wonderful author Fleur Hitchcock because this podcast is making up my stop on the blog tour for her newest book, The Boy Who Flew, which is published by Nosy Crow. Listen to me chat to Fleur about her writing from ball gowns to baddies and I'll also fill you in on some of her other titles which you can enjoy as well. Hope you enjoy the interview. Right, hello everybody. Today we are very lucky because we have author Fleur Hitchcock joining us on the blog tour for her book, The Boy Who Flew, which is published by the lovely folks at Nosy Crow with a brilliant front cover by Ben Mantle. Hi there, Fleur. Hi. Hi, Joe. How are you? Um, I am a bit croaky because I've done a week of, uh, two weeks of World Book Day visits and yes. they go on. Yeah. Yes, I bet you're exhausted now. Um, I'm not too bad today. But um, I've got more coming up at the end of this week and at the beginning of next week. So we'll see. Oh, my how goodness. Yeah. The calm yeah. before the storm. Yeah, exactly. The quiet bit. I'm in the eye of the storm, I think, at the moment. Mm. Yeah. Okay, that's always dangerous. Yes. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, could we just get started then with you telling us a little bit about the plot for The Boy Who Flew? Right. Um, this is always tricky because I don't want to give too much away. No. Um, okay, so it's um, it's about a boy called Athen, and he um, lives with his extensive family in a house in what might or might not be Bath, and um, he uh, is. He he longs for a life that's more exciting than the options which he has. So the options in front of him are doing things like uh, carrying sedan chairs and cleaning out sewers and uh, or cleaning out privies. And what um, he wants to be is he wants to be an inventor. Um, well, he doesn't really know that, but that's actually what he's actually quite good at. And he makes the acquaintance of a gentleman called Mr. Chen who lives opposite and who is an inventor and um, uh, they create a flying machine together. And all of this is at the beginning of the book and you know it, but, but dear lovely Mr. Chen is murdered um, at the very beginning of the book. And the flying machine is um, a secret, but presumably is the reason why Mr. Chen has been murdered and uh, Athens family are put in huge danger because of it. And it's all set about 300 years ago-ish. Perfect. Now, that doesn't draw you into the book. I don't know what will. A murder right at the beginning is a good way to kick off. Yeah, why not? Yeah, why not? Sets the tone nicely. Yes. It does. It It really does. Um, So you said it's about 300 years ago, which is the Georgian era, if I'm correct. So I I know that um, lots of your books have historical settings what drew you to the Georgian era for this story um well it's um I live outside bar you frankly can't avoid it um but it's partly because at the time I started to write this book um 
I was working in a, well, actually, frankly, if you work in Bath, you've got much choice, but I was working in a building that was 300 years old mm-hmm. or 350 years old, I suppose. And um, I was fascinated by the people that lived in it. And I kind of began to know more and more about them. And so they became my characters. It was as if they were there with me, a sort of collection of, a motley collection of people, including a clockmaker and some tailors. And uh, I just began to kind of imagine their lives. Oh, interesting. So the characters are kind of loosely based on the real inhabitants of the building that you actually once worked in? Sort of, yes, they are. Yeah, they are. I mean, actually completely different names and things. But uh, for a long time, there was a... um, there was a clockmaker in the draft who was called Mr. Bell. And indeed there was a clockmaker who had worked in the building. And I didn't know that until some bloke turned up one day and said, I would like to have a look around the building. There used to be a clockmaker who lived here. And I didn't know that. So hmm. it was, I, I got a sort of caught in, I got caught over the years in little snippets of information. And slowly I began to put this sort of picture together. Oh, brilliant. Now I said flight is a major theme in the book and I know that during the Georgian era there really was after the hot air balloons there was a real race to get man airborne Uh, um, on wings so did the theme of flight come first or did it come out of your interest in the Georgian era it sort of came second I think I think I wanted invention I knew I wanted invention Um, and then I began to think that the flight was because we had the Montgolfier brothers and they were taking off in hot air balloons but actually mm. powered flight was a long time later um, there were lots of people jumping off things covered in feathers and uh, not getting very far no. but Athen actually is Athen and Mr Chenna are trying to do powered flight and they are using the ancient knowledge of ancient China which was not powered flight but they were kind of further forward than most people I think even like a thousand years before and um, they had all these kites that took off so I kind of used all this stuff but it was like I read so much stuff around the period it was a slow evolution of an idea and then I seem to remember thinking is it possible I I wanted it to be possible I, I didn't want it to be magical I wanted it to be possible so yeah and it was really interesting um reading about um Ethan and Mr Chen going through the process of designing their prototype and piecing it together and you mentioned that you did a lot of reading around the area and was there any other more specific research you had to do to ensure that you got all the period details just right well we're lucky enough to have the Bath Costume Museum and um, it has some magnificently ridiculous frocks with like sort of huge sidebars going off. Um, and I really enjoyed those. Um, so I did, I, did, um, uh, I did wander around that. And what else did I do? Well, there's the Herschel Museum, which is also full of actual objects that people use. Um, I sort of looked into things like, I mean, some daft things like fireplaces and ranges and because the building I, I was wor- working in at that point still had fireplaces, but they were Victorian and I didn't want to drift into the whole Victorian thing. I didn't no. want to drift into steampunk. 
So I did sort of, I mean, even tiny museums like Bradford Naval Museum have things in it. So I was just being a magpie like I always am, just like thinking, oh, I wonder if they've got a Georgian bit, I'll pop in here. So it was sort of that thing of just pick, pick, building up a picture. Um, not, I'm because I'm not that kind of, oh dear, rigorous historian, I, I had to do it by more by feel than by design, I think, my research. Nice. I see. And were there any objects that you saw that you loved so much you immediately just lifted them as they were and put them into your story? Do you know, I don't know that there were. I can't think of anything. But um, I mean, I think I probably used some of the... Uh, there is a woman who is, appears at the beginning and uh, she is watching at an auction and she is more or less completely dressed in some clothes from the costume um, with a little umbrella and everything uh, because uh, it seemed to me to be so perfect so yes I did I did I did take some clothes and put them absolutely straight into the thing because Athen works in a tailor's um, and is surrounded by those things yes yeah. it seems logical doesn't it mm. Mm. yes yes yeah, a very handy backdrop indeed and some very fabulous frocks also yes yes <laughs> yeah very elaborate um so there are also without giving too much away about the actual story there are some rather interesting views on disability and kind of mental illness that are presented at various points in the yes. story did you get these kind of specifically from historical source material or just reading around the general attitudes of the time well, a bit of both. Um, I found um, I'm, I've always been quite interested in the notion of witches. And, you know, obviously people aren't actually witches, but um, people are frightened of people they don't know and they don't understand or who behave in a different way. Mm. And they ascribe to things to them. And um, that's part of ignorance. Um, and even in my own childhood, there was quite a lot of that. I mean, I both my grandmothers were Victorians and um, they had a lot of really strange superstitious beliefs about things um, and were very wary of... Uh, they, they weren't very open, put it that way. Right. <laughs> Not very 21st century. Um, so I, as a child, watched in fascination at their lack of logic. My father was a scientist, so it was very... Um, he used to say, he's all rubbish. So I kind of used some of that stuff. The other thing is my father was disabled and my his mother definitely viewed it as a weakness in some way, a sort of moral weakness. And um, that was very clear. Uh, so again, that, that was something I actually just observed. Right. And I thought, well, if you take it back 200 years, it's going to be a whole lot worse. Yeah. Um, and then, yes, I mean, I, also, I had access to the university records, which were full of, all sorts of strange newspaper articles about people being, you know, um, shut away for different reasons, having had fits or um, having behaved oddly in public, having taken their clothes off in public or something. You know? <laughs> um, and so all of those things were there. And then there was another thing, which was I'd done some research into Thackeray. Now, he's, he's a bit later, um, but he had a wife who I think probably bipolar. 
and he actually kind of tried to stand by her as much as possible. But I think she, he had a difficult time trying to keep his wife at home and then he gave up. Um, because I think the pressure was on to say she should be shut away. So, uh, you know, all of that, um, yeah, all of that, uh, all of that fed into it. Um, I think, you know, my own brushes with my father's disability, his mother's attitude, um, my grandmother's, and actually um, uh, some members of my family having um, uh, various uh, mental illness moments, which had meant that other members of the family did want to shut them away or behave or, or describe them in ways that seem quite inhuman, actually. Uh, and I felt that all of this, you just, you know, it's going to have been worse. It's not going to be better 200 years ago. No. So, yeah, so a sort of mix, I would say. Interesting. But good that you were able to weave that into a, into one of your stories. Yeah, well, I think you do. I mean, as a writer, you inevitably put your own experience in. Um, but, you know, part of what you do as a writer is to, ex is, is to extend stuff, is to take stuff further than the reality um, because, you know, so you're in a car accident and, and it's not too bad, but your imagination gives you a full scope of just how dreadful it could have been. So yes. you use that. Yes, I suppose you're right. So, so I'm hoping that for my next question, this is not based in any kind of real life scenario that you faced. I want you to just talk about the central villain of the piece, the rather chillingly named Colonel Blade, who was truly terrifying. Oh, and right, he, okay. He was, well, a, he, was, he was a really bad guy. He is really bad. And in some of the other versions, he's even worse. Um, really? He, be, he was sort of toned down very slightly, I think. Um, he he um, he's he is what is he? He just came out of nowhere, really. Um, he, he's people keep saying Dickensian. He's not Dickensian, I don't think. Although, I think probably I did. I mean, I've read a lot of Dickens, so it will have crept in there somewhere. Um, but it, he's he's sort of based on Sean Bean, um, right? Slightly. And I kind of thought, supposing you put Sean Bean into something and you just made him really nasty, this is what you'd get. Oh, no. So it's a very, I mean, this is no good for fans of Sean Bean. I'm a fan of Sean Bean, frankly. But it was just, um, it was a sort of like, what would happen if, you know? It's because I don't normally have an actual person that I would base a character on, but I sort of did in that instance. Just, oh. just the way he looks, probably, and the way he moves and the way he speaks is what he Yes, I'm not sure if he'd be, I don't know if he'd be pleased to hear that or not. No, he probably won't, but he probably never will, so it's fine. <laughs> but um, but I, I also think that you you play to your person's great... If your characters... You play to your character's fears. So whatever your character fears the most, you have to make your, your baddie be that thing that they fear. So the things that are most important to Athen are his family. And um, uh, and therefore, you just have to have somebody who's prepared to use that completely. Um, and that's what mm. Colonel Blade is. Yes. So I was going to ask you for your top tips for writing a believable baddie. So one would be make sure that it taps into the fears of your main yes. character. What other tips do you have? Definitely. 
Um, writing a believable baddie. Well, I think they do have to be believable. So you have to make them real. You have to totally imagine what they enjoy and what they're frightened of themselves. Um, what they what their what their reasoning is for doing whatever they're doing. I mean, I think you have to have a baddie who has absolutely full motivation for doing what they're doing. It it's really, really annoying when you get to the end of something and you're watching it on television and it's just like, well, they did it because they could, you know, or they yeah. did it because they're a psychopath. What you really want is you want to have a real reason for it. They have to be in a way desperate to behave that badly. So, you know, probably looking at somebody's motivation is the single most important thing and therefore making it real. Um, and then, you know, then the baddie's behaviour is to do with whoever the, uh, the protagonist is, what frightens the protagonist the most. Um, yes. To, to do that. But, you know, I think it comes out of a sort of instinct, really, about what scares you when you're writing it. You use that. Yes, and I suppose um, making your baddies have a real motivation, they're not just not just a psychopath it makes it more scary knowing that actually they're not a psychopath they have a real motivation for behaving this way and it's not a very nice one exactly definitely definitely you know it is it is the it is the strongest thing and it's the thing that i think makes the difference between good detective dramas on telly and ones where you go "Mm, all right yeah okay but it, it is very important yes no i agree thank you for that Um, So coming on to my last question, questions, really, it's two questions um, in two parts. So the first part is, what time period would you love to visit next in your work? And the second part of that, which you can come to, is are you currently working on anything that you can tell us about? Um, Right. So the first one, um, would I would I visit another period in history it would be um at the moment I'm thinking around the great fire of London um Mm. because it was a time of great change it was the restoration um Charles II was back on the throne it was post-Puritan um England and um and the actual fire must have been absolutely extraordinary um yes so I think I would like to, I would like to reimagine it um, with you know close up with with a group of characters, um, and that's sort of maybe what I'm thinking I might do. But mm. uh, in term in terms of what I'm actually working on, I'm not working on that at the moment. I'm just thinking about it, which is the sort of quite a long period of time thinking yeah. about it. It's a lot of staring out of train windows and scribbling things on bits of paper which I subsequently lose so um because I'm really really chaotic worker um but the other thing um is what am I actually working on I've got this series of four um books called the cliff toppers series which are nothing like as terrifying as my other books and which are for like seven-year-olds and they are absolutely free adventure stories about four cousins um brother and sister Ava and Josh who come from Birmingham and Chloe and Aidan who are not brother and sister but come from London and they um go and stay with their grandparents on a farm on the Dragon Peninsula 
where there is no mobile phone reception and they um, they foil they foil um mis you know miscreants they Brilliant. catch people uh, because they're because they're there and they chase around on bicycles and they get to use their grandfather's lovely little dinghy and take it out of the harbor and they are absolutely free they have a totally free time and their grandparents provide them with sandwiches and money to buy pasties um and are sort of nice um so they're, they're having this actually the sort of childhood i had yeah. so, uh, so that's that's what they are and so those those the first one those will come out in april and i've, I've got to edit the second one and write the third and fourth one so. and is there kind of an overarching story arc across the four books did you say or are they all very much standalone? i think they're all standalone it's always a bit of a debate on that i think it just means you can read them in any order yeah um, they're standalone same characters things actually might move on through a year very slightly um but i don't think it would matter very much if you so one might refer to the previous adventure but yeah, I think it's sort of easier so that people can access whichever one they find first. Yes, exactly, because in school libraries or public libraries, you don't necessarily have the first book of a series there, and it's really frustrating if you then dive into the second only exactly. to find you've got no idea what's going on. I know with my son, it was years of chasing around trying to find part two of something. We had part one and part three, but we never had the second one, you know, yeah. some books. And it was terribly frustrating. And, yeah, I think it's, I think it's fine I, mean, I know it's always been a problem with like the Enid Blyton books those children never grow up and there are hundreds and hundreds of adventures but I think if there's only four it doesn't matter too much no actually as a child as well having read all the famous five books at no point did it cross my mind oh they're not getting any older so I no. don't think it's a problem to kids as much as perhaps it is to the grown-ups I think you're probably right I think you are yeah children are very forgiving Children are very forgiving, but they ask some extremely important questions. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they think? are good at catching you out with questions. I wish someone had asked me that before it was published. Yes, no, they are. They, they are terrific. That's why it's great to write for them. Yes, and I have to say also, it's great that your older books do have some, you know, really scary moments in there because there aren't really very many children's books that do have age-appropriate scares in there they and kids really like to be frightened when they're reading they do. they do and i mean my other books are contemporary which means that they well in my son's view is that they're more scary because they're contemporary because when things are set in the past they're never as frightening as things no. now um so i push things as far as i think they will go there's a lot of conversation about this um, my editors about mm -hmm. you know, is that too scary or is this too scary and usually I'm at, usually I'm erring on the side of caution and they ask me to be a little bit scarier so perfect uh, although with Colonel Blade it did go the other way but yeah. but I but I think I wanted terribly scary books when I was a child I was desperate for them and I of course read because we didn't have teenage fiction I read utterly inappropriate adult stuff um mm. which uh actually i don't think it affected me at all it was just books to read i think children edit out the stuff they don't like when they're reading or don't understand yeah when they're watching a film you can't get away from it but with no. a book you just think that sentence means nothing to me so you yep. leave it whatever it may be yeah 
Yeah, I think you're right. I think you're right. I remember reading quite a lot of um, the Point Horror series when I was younger, before I then progressed on to Stephen King in kind of my teenage years. Oh, yeah. Well, I moved on to James Herbert, and I think it's about 11. Perfect. (laughs) Some some shockers there. And uh, Dick Francis, which, of course, was laden with um, pain, uh, masochism, sadism and sex. Uh, But, you know, that was fine. But uh, probably you were oblivious to most of it I too. I read it for the horses, you know. So there we are. <laughs> um, you know, that, brilliant. That, that's where it went for me. Um, Excellent. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, I think so fear is good. Yeah, it is definitely. And I'm looking forward to seeing your Cliff Topper series appearing, and also to see what comes of your Fire of London idea. Yes. Well, yeah. Don't hold your breath. I haven't even written a synopsis yet. So um, I'm, uh, I, I, yes, I think hopefully, um, of course, I may change it completely. Uh, so, you know, anyone who's waiting for the Fire of London book, <laughs> buy some other books in between, have a holiday or two, <laughs> do that PhD, and then maybe at the end of it, it might appear. Yeah. Perfect. Lovely. Well, on that note, I'm going to thank you very much for chatting to me this evening. It's been really interesting hearing how you work and, get your ideas together and I am very much looking forward to seeing what comes over the next year or so with your your new series and thank you again thanks very much Joe. that's thank great you. good night good night bye bye so I'm going to fill you in now on um, Flair's other collaborations with publisher Nosy Crow the first of which was Dear Scarlet, published in 2013. And this is about a young girl's attempt to learn more about her deceased father through the assortment of objects he has left her in a cardboard box. The second is called Saving Sophia, and this came out in 2014. And we meet 13-year-old Amy, who has found an abandoned newborn baby on her way to school. Now, the discovery of this baby brings back memories of her own mother walking out on her and her sister 10 years ago, so she decides to find the baby's mother. But as she does so, she uncovers another secret much closer to home. In 2016, Fleur also had her story Murder in Midwinter published with Nosy Crow, which is about a girl called Maya who witnesses from the top of a bus a couple violently arguing in the middle of a crowded Regent Street just before Christmas. But when the woman disappears, Maya goes to the police, who are initially dismissive, but when a body turns up, they um, send her into hiding in rural Wales as part of a witness protection scheme. As the snow pours down, Maya resolves to solve the mystery herself. And finally, well not finally, in 2018 Fleur also had published Murder at Twilight which focuses on a girl called Viv and her friend Noah who disappears following an argument they had at school. Police cars and vans are everywhere, lights are flashing but Viv is sure that he has just run away for attention but with the rain pouring down and the floodwaters rising Viv realises that a much more dangerous story is unfolding all around them. So that brings us up to date with um, The Boy Who Flew, published this year, being Fleur's most recent title. 
I'm sure you can tell from for a slightly more in-depth review by me please make sure that you visit my blog www.librarygirlandbookboy.wordpress.com for my full review and make sure that you take a look at the other stops on the Boy Who Flew's blog tour for exclusive interviews and snippets. Please don't be shy in contacting me to ask for recommendations of what to read next or books you can use for certain topics. You can either message me direct here if you use the Anchor app. You can get hold of me on the Library Girl and Book Boy blog or the Library Girl and Book Boy Facebook group or you can find me frolicking on Instagram and Twitter as at Book Superhero 2. Please remember to subscribe to make sure that you don't miss out on any forthcoming podcast episodes. Next week's podcast is with illustrator Joe Loring Fisher, who illustrated the rather wonderful Maisie's Scrapbook, which was written by Samuel Nahr and published by Lantana Publishing. It's all about a little girl called Maisie, who is mixed race. And it's a story about love and the similarities and differences between parents and families. Definitely worth a listen. And that's it for another week. Thanks so much for joining us. I hope you enjoyed Fleur's interview. And I hope you've remembered to subscribe so you don't miss out on Joe's interview next week as well as some recommendations of other titles which feature diverse families and characters goodbye for now